0: You are listening to the Southern Solstice Podcast with me, Sarah Sadler. Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode two of Southern Solstice Podcast. This week, you're going to be introduced to Bunny Ashby, Larkin's mother. She is the quintessential overbearing Southern mother. If you've ever heard the expression, the bigger the bow, the better the mama, that would definitely apply to Bunny Ashby. I've been really excited to share her with you and also get further into the story. With that said, chapter two, Moonshine. oh, you look terrible. The southern drawl spoken above a velvet voice and elongated vowel usage, was distinctive to only one woman Larkin knew. Elizabeth Ashby Devereux Caldwell Blaine Vassar Dabney, affectionately called Bunny. Hey, Mama, Larkin greeted her, getting off the couch and forcing a smile. Bunny was a slender, tall woman with shoulder-length dark hair, almost mahogany in color, Even in her fifties, her beauty was striking and accentuated by her vivaciousness and poised demeanor. Bunny swooshed through the doorway, bringing with her a wave of sweet perfume and clinking pearls. "'I brought Pris with me, of course,' she said, with a draft of enthusiasm and extended arms towards Larkin, embracing her for a tight hug. "'That ought to cheer you up if anything could. She's always been my beacon in times like these.' Couldn't have done without her, and Lord knows we both know how you feel right now. Larkin held back a small smile at the reference to her mother's almost countless marriages. Her divorce attorney was on speed dial, and the role of the mourning widow had been mastered, warranted or not. Briss, get on in here. Larkin is dying to see you. Bunny spoke in a loud voice to the direction of the street where Pris sat in a rented town car, driver's door propped open, hastily applying Coral Rose Estee Lauder lipstick and trying to manage her mountain of salt and pepper curls in the damp Seattle air. She just looks terrible, though, bless her heart. Larkin squeezed her eyes shut. Her mother always had a talent for talking about her, as if she wasn't there. I'm coming, I'm coming. Oh, I can't wait. I don't care what she looks like. I'll take her any way I can get her, Pris said, bouncing up the walkway with a butterfly print carpet bag and matching pop-up umbrella. Priscilla Alston Winslow Thompson had always been in Larkin's life and rarely left Bunny's side. She was a staple in all of Larkin's childhood memories and one of the only constants in Bunny's life. Men had come and gone, but Bunny and Pris always had each other. Oh, sweetheart, Pris whispered with all of the delicacy in the world. She hugged Larkin, stroking her hair while simultaneously observing the living room and kitchen. Everything is going to be just fine. Pris held Larkin back at arm's length, looking at her as if she were her own. You're just as pretty as a picture. A little skinny, but that's understandable. Nothing here that can't be fixed, huh, Mama? Pris looked over at Bunny, who agreed with one proud, solitary smile. Bunny and Pris had grown up together in Charleston's Battery Park area and were second-generation best friends. They'd attended Ashley Hall School for Girls before going on to the College of Charleston together and had spent the past 35 years surviving, as they called it, seven marriages and five children between them. They were true Charlestonians, steeped in the South and proud of their rich family histories. "'Now, Larkin,' Bunny started in her business tone, "'I know you've been through a lot, and I don't want to upset you, "'but you know why we are here, to take you home. "'There is nothing here for you anymore, "'and if you ask my opinion, which I know you won't, "'you had no business being out here in the first place. "'All this rain and fog and gloom, well, it's enough to make anybody depressed.' "'Pris stood beside Bunny, nodding in calm agreement. "'I know you thought he was the one, but he just wasn't, sugar.' Pris said in a sweet voice. It's like carrying an egg from the refrigerator to the counter, only to drop it and break it on the way there, but then realizing it was rotten all along anyway. It doesn't get you any closer to finishing the recipe, but at least you know that you would have needed a different egg. Bunny rolled her eyes at Pris's flowery metaphor. It had been twelve days since David had left. Larkin had waited as long as she possibly could to break the news to her family almost as if she had done something to be ashamed of. After three missed phone calls from her older sister, Larkin knew she would have to break the news sooner rather than later. To her surprise, she felt a huge sense of relief in telling Caroline the news, but knew it would only be a matter of days before Bunny showed up in Seattle, script in hand, determined to save her. Larkin knew there was nothing left for her here except false hope for David's change of heart. Still, she felt unprepared for the ensuing changes, and the tightness in her chest was growing. I know how you're feeling, Lark. I do. You might have been too little to remember. You were maybe no more than five. But Cal Stewart did the very same thing to me right before our wedding, and I was devastated. Bunny closed her eyes and clenched her chest for dramatic effect. It was about a year after your daddy died and before I married Marshall Caldwell. Or was it after I divorced Marshall and before I married Roger Blaine? Bunny looked at Pris for verification. No, it was before Marshall, Pris stated, not even looking up from the purse she was rifling through. Well, anyway, Bunny continued, I'm here to tell you that life does go on, baby, and you will meet someone else, someone smart enough to stop looking when they find you, someone who deserves you, and God willing, a Southerner. Bunny closed her eyes as if she were praying. "'And besides,' she continued, her voice perky, "'you know I need you back home. "'We can be lonely together.' "'Her eyes twinkled at the prospect. "'Oh, isn't that nice,' Pris said sweetly. "'The tightness in Larkin's chest increased, "'and she swallowed hard. "'So far, her life was setting up "'to look a lot like her mother's, "'a fate she had dreaded since she was old enough "'to know what normal was supposed to look like. "'I don't want to be lonely,' Larkin began to cry. "'I want to be with David.' She felt ridiculous for saying it out loud, the residual toxins of heartache poisoning her sanity. Prissy, I think we're going to need something with some grit to fix this one up, Bunny instructed as she stroked Larkin's hair. How about some of the good stuff? Pris winked in agreement and quickly walked out of the kitchen and into the living room where her butterfly carpet bag was propped against the sofa. She smiled as she unzipped the top and reached inside, pulling out a red flask. Ta-da! The potion for your emotion. And just wait, because I perfected this batch. You'll be saying David who in no time flat. Jewels on your crown, Bunny said out of habit. The saying had become her official tagline. Whether for feeding the homeless or fetching her coffee, Jewels on your crown was Bunny's heavenly promise for a job well done here on Earth. Larkin sat up, blowing her nose into a Kleenex. She smiled at Priss's homemade moonshine and her attempt at making everything better. "'You remember the time Sylvia and I got into this stuff when we were twelve? she asked. "'Oh, I'll never forget,' Pris exclaimed. "'There I was, watching you and your sister for the week your mamma was on her honeymoon with, hmm, who knows who, and I go outside to find you and Sylvia laid out by the pool like a cold supper, drunk as a couple of skunks. Oh, I could have died. I would have never forgiven myself if something had happened.'" Sylvia was Pris's youngest child, older than Larkin by two days. She had been like another sibling to Larkin and her older sister Caroline. Their mothers had given them no choice but to be inseparable growing up. Sylvia looked every bit like Pris, proportionally fluffy and mountains of hair, but with biting, cynical humor. "'Well, I knew right away that the twins had given it to you,' Pris said, shaking her head. "'I have never been as mad at those boys as I was that day. "'You were still a little wrong side up the next morning, and I had to keep you out of school. "'You remember that?' "'Pris took a quick swig and passed the flask to Larkin, scowling from the taste. "'Pris's twins, Jackson and Taylor, were the oldest of all the children.' They were only a year older than Caroline Devereux, but because there were two of them and their presence so concentrated, it seemed as if they were much older than the four years that separated them from Larkin and Sylvia. They were always into something, catching frogs and crawdads, climbing trees and planning sabotages of the girls' sleepovers. For most of her childhood, Larkin had dreaded the twins' presence with everything in her. Pris blamed their daddy, Tip Winslow, for their ruckus behavior. Tip's family was from Rock Hill, on the edge of North Carolina, far inland. Pris called them outdoorsy-type people. She wouldn't admit that she had married into a clan of hillbillies, but knew all along that they were, and secretly cherished, the rebellion of it all. Pris loved Tip every day that they were married. He had loosened her from the aristocratic tangle of Charleston and taught her to love life. When Tip died six years earlier due to complications after a car accident, Pris became determined to carry on the traditions she had so adamantly frowned upon in the beginning of their marriage, Moonshine being the first. She had gotten rather good at making it now, though, and enjoyed bootlegging it all over the Lowcountry. When Larkin was seventeen, she had been crazy for one of Pris's twins. Jackson was irresponsible and remote, but handsome as the devil." When he came home from Auburn over the holidays during his senior year of college, Jackson was enamored with how beautiful Larkin had become in the time he'd been away at school. She was fair and thin with delicate features and hazel eyes framed by wavy auburn hair. Somehow, the subtle sensuality Larkin had unknowingly inherited from Bunny had gone unnoticed by everyone until that point, but she had indeed blossomed into a superb creature, despite being planted in the shadow of her mother's extravagant presence. As was tradition, their families went to Edisto Island together for Christmas Eve through New Year's Day to stay at Will-o'-the-Wisp, the the Ashby family's house. Will-o'-the-Wisp was named for the eerie pixie lights that flicker off the water and was a massive colonial house positioned on an estuary where the black water from the Edisto River would amble tirelessly until it disappeared into the Great Atlantic, disregarded. Larkin and Jackson kept their feelings a secret from the family, Neither of them could stomach the thought of Bunny disapproving. In between helpings of molasses pork tenderloin and squash casserole at supper, Jackson reached for Larkin's hand under the table and told her with a devious, intense smile that he had a Christmas present he wanted to give her when they were alone. In an effort to divert him from the scandalous plot that he had most certainly devised, She refused to make eye contact with him for the rest of the evening and even offered to read the Christmas story from the book of Matthew, just in case there was any chance for deliverance. Savoring the last of her innocence, Larkin found every excuse she could to postpone going to bed that night. But long after everyone had hugged goodnight and the house was dissonantly quiet, she finally accepted her fate and walked upstairs to the far side of the house to find Jackson leaning against her bedroom door. The glow of a waning moon seeped through the windows, and a damp mist draped like a quilt over the ocean. Somehow, after all the trepidation of knowing Jackson would come through on his promise, she was relieved that he had. To her surprise, Jackson held an actual Christmas present out to her, wrapped messily but finished with a bow. It was a first-edition Chapman and Hall copy of Great Expectations. "'You are my Estella,' "'Jackson said, after she opened it and thumbed through the antique pages, "'I have to have you.' "'Larkin, still finding it important to make Jackson think she was more prudent than she had implied, "'tried not to look as pleased as she felt, but her delicate face gave her facade away. "'Their first time together would have been madly romantic "'if she hadn't been scared to death of getting caught. "'Jackson, on the other hand, didn't seem to mind the risk that was tangled in their juvenile affair.' only that the past few weeks of being teased by Larkin's eager kisses behind doors and in hallways had been vindicated by her willingness to finally oblige him. Immense guilt coupled by the utter shock flooded her consciousness the next day as they celebrated the birth of Jesus by opening presents and singing carols around the Christmas tree. Larkin was disappointed in her lack of remorse, and Tip's speech about everyone being one big happy family didn't bring much comfort either especially as Jackson burned a hole straight through her, mentally making plans for an afternoon of debauchery. She nearly fainted. The guilt eventually melted under the pleasure they found, and she gladly granted his frequent requests. I think we should tell him, Jackson whispered the night before he returned to Auburn. No, what's wrong with you? Larkin felt frozen with fear from the idea of their families knowing. She sat up, pulling her shirt on over her head but I want to be with you, bird, and I don't care if everybody knows. Jackson kissed her while he buttoned his shirt. I'm moving back after graduation anyway. So we'll talk about it then, Larkin said, hoping to delay him. But they never talked about it again, and he never came back after graduation. Go lay down for a while, Bunny instructed Larkin as she capped the moonshine and handed it back to Pris. A little cat nap would do your complexion good, I think. Larkin didn't need any convincing of the need for sleep. Nodding in agreement, she slowly stood up from her chair, dizzy from the burly moonshine, and shuffled down the hall to her makeshift space in the guest bedroom. Somehow, having her mother there felt strangely comforting, and she was thankful for some serenity after nearly two weeks of emotional chaos. As she drifted off to sleep, she heard the women verbally dissecting David's decorating. Their voices dissipated into the back of the house while Larkin fell asleep. "'comforted to know that she was not alone anymore. "'Hours and what felt like a lifetime later, "'Larkin woke up to rain on the window "'and laughter drifting in and out of the guest bedroom. "'Judging by the bird songs outside, "'she could tell it was morning. "'She got out of bed and walked sleepily down the hall "'to find Bunny and Pris in the kitchen, "'flipping through magazines and catalogs. "'Well, there she is,' Pris said, "'getting up from her stool at the kitchen counter "'and greeting Larkin with a hug.' Bunny was fully dressed, with hair and makeup already done. What time is it? Larkin asked, stretching. It's noon already. Well, it's nine o'clock here, but we're still on Eastern time, Bunny replied matter-of-fact, pushing the sleep-flattened hair out of Larkin's face. You must have been absolutely exhausted, Pris cut in. I almost put a mirror under your nose to make sure you weren't dead. I told you this batch of moonshine was a good one. Pris winked at Larkin and let out a giggle. Didn't know it'd make you sleep all night and half the day, though. Not to worry. Being back home will build your tolerance. Hope you don't mind, Bunny said, handing Larkin a cup of coffee. But Prissy and I have taken the liberty of packing up all your little things. Larkin looked around to see boxes stacked up near the kitchen island. We thought about shredding some of you-know-who's shirts and linens, maybe the mattress, but thought that might be tacky. You think that's tacky? Bunny looked at Larkin inquisitively, hoping she'd say no. No, Mama, that's not necessary. Larkin tried to hide that she was amused by the idea. She could tell by the look on Priss's face that she too was disappointed that they wouldn't be demolishing anything. Well, if you change your mind, we came prepared, Pris offered, motioning to a large pair of Fisker gardening shears that gleamed with the anticipation of hacking more than azaleas. How'd you get those through airport security? Larkin asked. Honey, that's why her hair's so big, Bunny said, taping a box closed. It's full of secrets. By now, Bunny had memorized a retribution ceremony for cheaters. After years of unfaithful men and a lot of practice, revenge came easy to her. As in all things, she was elegant in her approach, and between her and Pris, there was no evidence of recourse ever left behind. They were a force to be reckoned with, delighting in the punishment. Larkin remembered when Bunny found out about her third husband, Roger Blaine, having an affair with some woman from New Jersey. Unfortunately, Roger hadn't been very tactful with his infidelity, and when Bunny found pictures of him and his mistress in compromising positions on the desk of his state-run office, she had them published in the Post and Courier. Elected officials don't fare well with public disgrace, and Bunny, naturally, played the part of an unknowing, horrified wife. Roger never knew it was Bunny who had sold him out to the public. The thought crossed his mind, but he assumed that she would never have put herself or family name through that level of public humiliation. He had severely underestimated her. After all, she'd been awarded more than half of the Post and Courier in her divorce settlement from Marshall Caldwell years earlier, and had worked diligently to increase the gossip columns, firmly believing that the Southern art of slander would sell more papers than how the stock markets were failing. The story on the Roger Blaine affair alone tripled the circulation and increased readership by 45% all that quarter. From Bunny's perspective, their marriage had been a success after all. Larkin knew her mother had been deeply hurt by what Roger had done, but she also had too much pride to let anyone see it keep her down for long. After that, she swore off all politicians and Yankees saying it's that damn northern aggression. Larkin and Caroline's father, Charles Devereux, had dropped dead of a heart attack on the 13th hole of Oak Point on Kiowa Island when Larkin was four and Caroline was seven. Larkin wished so much that she could remember more of him than the plaid golf knickers he was known for, but Bunny's way of dealing with his loss was to move on and not speak of him. As far as Larkin knew, her father was the only man that Bunny had ever truly loved, and everyone that came after him was a disappointment. Even though Bunny continually remarried after every failed attempt, she justified it to her daughters by saying, Sometimes you only get one person that loves you enough to last a lifetime. I'm just making sure there aren't two. Currently, Bunny had just finalized a divorce from Coy Dabney, possibly the strangest man Larkin had ever met. Standing only five foot four, he was the shortest of all of Bunny's husbands, and at just under one year long, their marriage was also the shortest in her catalog of nuptials. She didn't win anything in terms of a settlement because she had more money than Coy, and theirs was the only marriage she had to cite irreconcilable differences, as opposed to the usually more theatrical infidelity or death. After the divorce, Bunny told Larkin's unwilling ears that the irreconcilable part had been Coy's inability to perform where it counts. Having heard enough already, Larkin did not push for the details behind that statement. Before Coy, Bunny had been married to a lovely older man named Jesse Vassar, a yacht designer in his 70s that Bunny affectionately called Sailor. Sailor was sick for most of their four-year marriage, but he was crazy about Bunny and said that she kept him young. The whole family felt like they'd lost a dear friend when Sailor died, so Bunny founded the annual Sailor Ball in his honor, one of her many philanthropic undertakings that just happened to evolve ungodly amounts of alcohol and designer gowns. Larkin knew that it wouldn't be long before Bunny would fall head over heels again, especially since Pris had happily remarried a few years ago to a very nice man named Hank Thompson. Hank often joked that he had married two women when he married Pris. In many ways, he still didn't know how true that statement was. The rain began to subside outside. Only a sleepy drizzle collected on the windows now. Larkin ate two bites of a sandwich that Bunny and Pris had gotten earlier, but she hadn't felt much like eating anything since David left. Bunny left her position at the kitchen table and walked over to Larkin, looking down at the sandwich. Honey, I hate that son of a bitch that left you. Usually I think women have something to do with a man's leaving, but I blame him. For absolutely everything. I always say you never can trust a man that asks a woman to live with him before marriage anyway. Bunny's morals were sporadic, but the ones she followed were highly coveted and closely adhered to when convenient. It must be poor breeding and all this rain that left him without the capacity to love you good enough. Bunny looked out the window and scowled. His loss, cause you are really something, Lark. I mean that, really something. Larkin hugged her. It felt nice to have her mother's support. All right, let's talk business, Bunny said with a satisfied smile, fully recovered and back to plotting. We have FedEx coming later this morning to pick up the boxes we packed. They're shipping them home. Bunny checked Larkin's reaction to the reference of home, and when she did not seem opposed, continued. We packed you a suitcase to hold you over till then, and we have a flight home later tonight. It's a red-eye, but I've got a charity ball committee meeting and a thing with some godforsaken property in the low country that I've got to get back for. That all sound okay to you, Shug? Yes, thank you, Larkin replied. You two have thought of everything. Bunny and Pris nodded in agreement. All you have to do is get on that plane and forget this ever happened. Pris winked, glowing with accomplishment. Speaking of forgetting, I promised Hank I'd bring back one of those little space needle magnets from the airport gift shop. He just loves tacky things. Guess that's why he ended up with me. Pris threw her head back, laughing. Larkin was resolved at the idea of returning home, even though she'd have to explain a million times to a million people what she had been doing for the past year and a half. She thought that getting married would take the emphasis off the fact that she still hadn't decided on a profession or a life. Since college, she'd finished several internships without any clear direction as to what she wanted to do. Now she was single or worse, unengaged, and still couldn't answer the what-do-you-do question. The friends she'd made in Seattle were all David's friends. She cringed at the thought that all or some of them had known about his affair. She didn't have anything to say to any of them now. Bunny and Press were right. There was absolutely no reason for her to stay there a second longer. By the way, Bunny said, taping up a box, I took the liberty of having Carrie in my office order some cancel-the-date cards to let everyone know the wedding is off. Hope you don't mind. No need for this to drag out like weak old roadkill, she said, scrunching up her nose at the implication of the impending awkwardness Larkin was yet to endure. We'll finalize the wording before they print. I didn't know there was such a thing, Larkin said, surprised. I don't even know how to begin wording something like that. I guess picked the wrong guy, gave the wrong finger works. They all let out a good laugh. Sounds good to me, sugar, Bunny said, thumping a stash of magazines down and tidying up. Let's get this show on the road. My body's not used to this elevation. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or by visiting my website, sarasadler.com. I'd like to thank my producer, Melissa Fuller-Check, Gary Sadler, my dad, for writing the soundtrack, and Elizabeth Lennox for the artwork.